know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does happen. AM 1420, WBSM presents Spooky South Coast with your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here along with science advisor Matt Moniz. I have no idea what YouTube was doing there, but thanks for that. Cleans out the old eardrums. That hurt. Yeah. Welcome to the program where we talk about the paranormal each and every Saturday night and where we use YouTube to run our opening theme because we have no way to plug <laughs> in the iPod anymore. And that's what happens when you get something like that going on. Uh, but, and that was pretty paranormal, I'd have to say. But uh, we are here to talk about the paranormal, as we are each and every Saturday night, normally at 10 p.m., but the Red Sox post pushed us back a little bit. And uh, if you listen to the few minutes uh, of broadcast before we went on the air, we did want to mention that we have a new Legend Trips event that will be announced this week, just to let everybody know here at the top of the program. Uh, that will be the Haunted History Night 2012. And uh, that's about all the details I'm going to give right now. It will be on October 20th. Tickets are $99. And it's in Wareham. So a few more details. <laughs> but uh, those of you who uh, attended last year or even missed it last year, uh, this is your chance to get back into places like the Fearing Tavern, the One Room Schoolhouse, the Union Chapel, and the Old Methodist Meeting House. $99. I just keep giving more details, even though I said I wasn't going to give any more. Because it hasn't formally been announced to the general public, and tickets are not available to the general public yet. They're only available to the legend trippers who are on our special email presale list. And that's people who have either signed up for the email list or have attended one of our events in the past. So uh, if you have or if you've signed up for the email list, check your inbox because the link is in there to purchase your tickets. Buy them fast because, as I mentioned earlier, the first time ever we had a sellout in presale for our Dead of Summer event coming up next month at Lizzie Borden's. That's the first time that's ever happened, but I don't think it'll be the last. So uh, get your tickets early. Get them often. Buy them for friends and family. They make a great early Christmas gift. And, of course, uh, Legend Trips events, you get dinner, you get lectures. We're going to have a live 30-odd minutes taping, which should be nice and easy because we can just borrow equipment from Wareham TV right across the road, and you don't have to lug all kinds of stuff around. Uh, and then also uh, hours of investigation. And, and we give you dinner. Who, who else gives you dinner? And we give you my wife's home-baked desserts. Oh, God, it's worth it just for that. And I'd like to announce that pretty soon those are going to be available at South Coast Coney's in Middleborough. People who have heard about my wife's desserts over the last few years will be able to go in there and purchase them. She's going to be making cookies and cookie bars and brownies and all kinds of stuff. And, uh, and Jay over at South Coast Coney's is going to be displaying them and selling them. So it'll be your opportunity to taste them. But still, the best way to get them is always to go to a Legend Trips event. So uh, definitely check those out and. uh You'll you'll not be disappointed. It's worth a trip to Middleborough from the South Coast area. And while you're there, get some hot dogs because the hot dogs there are awesome. And you can't just go in and have just dessert. Says you. Well, get some hot dogs too. And uh, <laughs> so that's enough of the uh, plugging for tonight. But uh, just a reminder, Wednesday, 8 p.m., that's when those tickets will be available to the general public. All right, now let's get right into the discussion. Tonight we're going to be talking about New England folklore with our guest, Peter Muse. His website is newenglandfolklore.blogspot.com. Uh, he has a uh, master's degree, I'm sorry, in anthropology, and he's been running the blog since August of 2008. And now let's bring him on the show right now, if I can do everything correctly. Good evening, Peter. How are you? 
Good. How are you, Tim? I'm doing spooktacular, as we say here. Good. <laughs> and and thank you for your patience last week with the issues with the Red Sox, and again this week. And you know, the Red Sox trump everything around here, so I understand. You know what I mean? It's sort of it's the state religion, so we just have to accept that. Well, but some of these stories that we're going to be talking about here tonight have been around a lot longer than the Red Sox. That is true. So they that should is- take precedence. Plus, uh, they're not losing like the Red Sox are either. (laughs) Trade deadline or New England folklore. Is it going to be buyers or sellers? No. All right. Right. So uh, let's get right into some of these topics tonight because this is something that uh, I've been talking about with Chris Balzano, our show's content director, for a few weeks now. And when we were looking over at the blog, I I mentioned to you what impresses us isn't just the fact that you're telling these stories and sharing these, these legends and folklore of New England, but that you're offering insight and analysis. You're able to put some of these stories in a modern context or even into the context of the time. But these are just the trees that you're posting up, but you're still able to put it all together and see the forest. Right. I, you know, I try to, I think, um, like I say, I don't want to just kind of regurgitate, regurgitate the stories and put them up there. I definitely like to say, okay, this is where I found the story. Maybe these are some similar stories that you can find about these elsewhere. Or maybe, like, this is where the story has come from. You know, we may have a great, for instance, we have a great story, a piece of folklore in New England that, you know, you shouldn't let your baby look into a mirror until it's been baptized. Right. That, that's, a New that you, that's a New England thing? Because I've heard that from, for years. Yeah, right. Some sort of, it's been recorded in New England from the 1800s. Folklorists have sort of found this out in western Massachusetts among farm families. They would say, oh, don't let your baby look in a mirror, because if you do, before it's baptized, it will die, it will lose its soul. But you can look further back and see, okay, you know, this sort of ties into the whole idea about, you know, vampires have no reflection in a mirror because mm-hmm. they don't have a soul. Um, you know, uh, in the Jewish tradition, when you sit shiva when someone dies, you cover the mirror with a cloth mm-hmm. so the soul won't get sort of trapped in the house and can escape. Um, and even if you look back to the uh, Native Americans in the area, they had a word for soul, which was co-way-walk, which is sort of a word that um, Roger Williams recorded among the Narragansett when he was down there in the 1600s, which basically the Narragansett used both to mean soul and reflection. So you can just sort of, it's interesting to look and see like the connections from one little thing and you can sort of broaden it into, you know, some interesting history and some interesting folklore from multiple places. Right. And, and to me, that's, that's the more intriguing part. I mean, as cool as these stories are, uh, the fact that they have these connections to, to other cultures uh, is what makes it universal. I mean, when I look at some of the things that we talk about on this show as being modern paranormal phenomena, I'm blown away when we start making the connections between those and you know what we hear from the past. Like We talk about some of these archetypes uh, and how they float through, and that's definitely been the case with a lot of this folklore over the years is we are seeing kind of repetitive patterns. It may change form a little bit, but it's still the same basic story. Right. I, I, yeah. Like When you look at something like, let's say... Um Betty and Barney Hill, who mm-hmm. were, let's say, I, I believe they were the first official UFO abductees. And no, they weren't. No, they were not. Okay. Well, so they're, they have, but they're the first mainstream. We can call them the first pop culture uh, abductees. Yeah, and, okay. and they were certainly abducted locally in New Hampshire. And so their narrative, you can look back to see parallels between their story about being abducted and tales from the Middle Ages and earlier people being abducted by fairies, mm-hmm. 
often this idea about fairies are very concerned about reproduction, which I think is interesting. Often in folklore, you, the fairies say that they need humans to help nurse their babies, or they need humans to help carry the fairy line forward because somehow their bloodline has become weak. And with a lot of the uh, UFO abductees, there are the similar concerns in there. So like the aliens are often really concerned about, you know, making half-human, half-alien hybrids or really concerned about people's reproductive organs and things like that. Mm -hmm. So you get that kind of connection, I think, and you can see that what we think is sort of a modern thing, these sort of UFO abductions, actually have a lot longer history. And I'm not sure what they really are. Like, I can't say, oh, this is the truth about what a UFO abduction is or what a fairy abduction is. But you can see it's been going on for a lot longer than people think it has been. And, and just as a side note, uh, my colleague here, Matt Moniz, he's been investigating UFOs and abduction cases for many years. But we, we talked about this last week when we had to bump you off. And we only had like a 20-minute show. But we talked about how uh, the alien abductions of today are similar to the fairies' encounters of, of years past. And I got an email from somebody this week that actually wanted to call me out on that and <laughs> say, you know, how dare you say that aliens of today are just fairies in a different form? And I wrote back to him. I said, I, I didn't say that. I never said that there wasn't the possibility that fairies of back then were just aliens and that they were coming back then. And they were, that's how those people perceive them under their cloud of, of, of their time. So, right. you know, well, it's, they, nobody's well, saying it's one's right or one's else, wrong. Yeah. Maybe it's something else altogether mm -hmm. that, you know, people in the Middle Ages called fairies, people now are calling UFOs, and maybe it's something else entirely beyond those categories. Right. You know, whatever that may be. Now, when you're going through, I mean, just a, a, you, you mentioned a lot of the same works as being reference points for some of these, these stories, but, I mean, you must be digging these little pieces of folklore out from every corner of uh, every antique bookstore around here. Well, you know, it's, there are some great, books that are sort of compendiums that I have, you know, I found, um, like Richard Botkin has a book like A Treasure of New England Folklore, or, or Richard Dorson has a book called Jonathan Draws the Longbow, and in some of those books they will drop a hint about something, like, oh, and you know, in this town they have a place called the Devil's Den, and then if you go to a library, you can find the history of that town, mm -hmm. And a lot of the town histories in New England were written in the 1800s, usually sort of after the Civil War. And at that point, in, you know, in the region's development, the area was becoming industrialized. You know, science was definitely the dominant mindset. And so when you read these histories, they usually have a chapter where it's like, oh, and look at all these funny things our ancestors used to believe. And in those chapters, you'll find, like, the witch stories, the haunted houses, the places where the devil showed up those type of things. Um, along the Boston Athenaeum here in Boston, and they have just a floor, basically, of uh, town histories, village histories, state histories. So once I find a lead, I can often go and say, okay, what happened in the town of Norwood, or what happened in you know, Plaster, New Hampshire, or wherever it is, and you can go back to the original source and see what people have said about these things. So that's kind of my, the path I usually follow. Um, surprisingly, Google Books, online often has text of these histories from the 1800s as well, the complete text available. So once you kind of know what you're looking for, you kind of poke around and find things there. Well, you had, you had mentioned uh, the devil, you know, the devil's den. Like it seems like so many places around new England have uh, these locations oh. that are attributed to the devil. The 
devil. Yeah, he was really, really active. He may still be, but in more subtle ways, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, um, you know, the devil's bean pot, the devil's den, the devil's oven, purgatory chasm. Um, there were several swamps in the area called Tophet Swamp. Uh, and Tophet is an old Hebrew word for hell. Um, so we've got that in there as well. And usually there's just all different stories about what exactly happened as, at these spots, whether the devil dragged their victim down to hell there, or the devil got angry that he couldn't grab somebody's soul, so he sort of stamps his foot down, he's like really angry, stamps his foot and makes a big hoof print. There's lots of places in the window where you can see the devil's hoof print apparently embedded in rock. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also, I think, often places that have the word devil in them Maybe places where the local Native Americans were active, particularly uh, for religious rituals, because the you know the English settlers sort of looked at the Native Americans' religion as devil worship. Uh, you know the Puritans were not tolerant people, and so you know a lot of the swamps, I think, particularly the Tophet Swamp, those were um, the Native Americans often felt that swamps were connections to the other world. Kind of their version of the other world involved a lot of water. So turtles, eels, snakes, frogs, animals like that were often emissaries from the other world. You'd find these animals in swamps. Um, so for the Puritans, swamps were devilish because the Native Americans found them sacred. So you get those names kind of giving you a hint, okay, this is probably someplace where there was a lot of Native American activity as well, um, which I think is kind of interesting. And and you mentioned Native Americans, and, and a lot of their folklore has kind of been co-opted uh, by the English who have come here. And uh, what, reading through some of the stories on the blog, one of the things that I found interesting, and I'm probably going to pronounce this wrong, but was the, the story of Glooskap right. from, from okay. the Algonquins. Right, and he kind of, you find a lot of stories about him um, in the Maritime Provinces, Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont. Um, sort of the, up in northern New England. And here in southern New England, uh, sort of his equivalent, and not, he's not identical, but there's a character called Moshop. I was going to ask, yeah, if they, were, if they were similar. And they're kind of similar, like these just really gigantic guys. I mean, they are giants who, you know, are mostly beneficial, but sometimes they make a mistake or screw things up a little bit, um, and then they have to fix their own problems. So, you know, Glooscap does things like uh, he's trying to fish in the harbor, for example, up in Maine. And this, this wind keeps blowing and blowing and scaring the fish away. He's like, oh, I've got to do something about this wind. So he treks and treks and treks, and he finds this mountain with this gigantic eagle, which is flapping its wings all the time and causing the wind. It's an animal called something like the wind eagle. And so, you know, he ties it up. He's like, I'm sick of you and your wind ruining my fishing. I'm going to tie you up so you can't make any more wind. So he ties up the wind eagle. He goes back to the harbor. He fishes successfully for a while, but slowly, you know, the air becomes stagnant. The water starts to become stagnant. Everything gets filled with mosquitoes because there's no wind. The weather doesn't change. And finally, uh, he has this grandmother who is a groundhog, and she's sort of the source of wisdom in a lot of these stories. And she finally says, like, you know, Glooscap, We've got to go back and untie that eagle. I mean, he may have been disturbing your fishing, but, you know, he's making the whole weather system work here. So he, Glooscap goes back to the mountain and unties the eagle, and, you know, the wind starts to flow again. Um, and there are lots of natural features. 
that Gluskep is responsible for. You know, uh, he there's a famous story about a giant sort of frog who has built a dam and he's created this gigantic lake. And again, it's this idea that things aren't flowing. All the water is being contained by this giant frog in a lake. And so Gluskap battles with the frog to get the water to flow. And so there are some places up in Maine where you can talk about this is where the the frog was defeated, this is where the water has been flowing and things like that. Um, And similar stories have been told about places in Massachusetts even, about sort of this giant frog who controls all the water. You have to defeat that frog so the system can start moving again. Well... Uh, Go ahead. No, I was, I was going to say one of the characteristics of of the Mawshop legend here is that he was taken down by uh, the creatures that we call puckwudgies, and right. the the little uh, I don't know. Even trying to give a definition of them these days leads into controversy and and debate. But uh, were there similar creatures to the puckwudgie uh, associated with Gluskop? Well, the, you know, it's an interesting word, puckwudgie. Um, there's a great book by an actually an anthropologist named William Simmons, and it's called Spirit of the New England Tribe. And he looks at certain uh, sort of folklore themes among Native Americans, particularly in southern New England, and how they evolved over time. And so the word Pukwudgie became popular in the 19th century, probably the mid-1800s. That word started to get used um, in southern New England to talk about this sort of... Um, kind of like an elf or a forest-dwelling spirit of some kind. Um, before that, they were often called Makayawasug, which is a hard word to say, and I'm not even sure if I'm saying it right. But you see that word Makayawasug kind of up and down, you know, from the maritime provinces down through New England. And so there are these kind of little people who live in the forest. They're maybe three or four feet high. They're hard to see. Um, some stories say that they are two-dimensional. They're actually completely flat. Wow. So if, they're, if they turn, you're not going to be able to see them. It's kind of with their defense mechanism almost. You know what I mean? I'm going to turn to my side. I'm two-dimensional. You can't see me. Um, some people associate them also with whippoorwills. That at night, if you hear a whippoorwill, it may be a makaiwasug in disguise. Uh, and so, you know, whippoorwills have their own like long history of folklore about them. But so there is that, those kind of little forest-dwelling people that um, people associate. So I think the word Pukwudgie is kind of a newer term, but referring to the same group of people who are, you know, I would say mischievous is probably the word for them, I guess. And, and it seems like uh, like Chris Balzano's a, a big researcher into them, and it seems like the more uh, he gets into the stories, they become less mischievous and more evil uh, in their intent. <laughs> and, uh, you know, one of the casinos... Uh, in Connecticut, actually has a video about them. Really? <laughs> um, and they're, the video they have about the Makaiwa thug is more about them as sort of underground dwelling, um, almost like fairies, and the sort of the leader of their fairy kingdom, or I, they wouldn't use the kingdom, but the word kingdom, uh, is Granny Squant. And Squant is sort of an old deity in this area, in, this, in southern New England, so she's often portrayed as Moshop's wife. And, you know, when Roger Williams was down among the Narragansett in Rhode Island, uh, he recorded names of various gods or manitous that the Narragansett uh, said existed. And they had a deity named, named Squanet, 
which basically means the woman's goddess or the goddess of the women. Um, and so she became Squant. Now she's sometimes called Granny Squant. And so I'm not sure which casino it was. I think it was Foxwood actually produced a video where, you know, Granny Squant is sort of the ruler or the lead person among the Makaiwasug who are living in their underground kingdom. Uh, she gets ill, and the Makaiwasug bring um, a Native American medicine woman down into their underground world to heal her. And after she's healed, this woman becomes a healer among the humans as well. So... Uh, you know, I, it's hard to say. Like, different people have different interpretations about some of these myths and some of these um, entities that have been reported sure. to be living around here, you know? Well, I mean, one of the uh, sources that you mentioned frequently on the site, uh, and again, that is newenglandfolklore.blogspot.com, linked up on the front page of SpookySouthCoast.com. But you mentioned John Jocelyn quite a bit, and it seems like uh, yeah. a lot of these stories and legends, you know, he was one of the first to record them. Yeah, and I have to say, I was just, I love this idea about John Jocelyn. He came to Maine in, I think it was 1639, and he was not a Puritan. Uh, he was an upper-class nobleman from England, and he came to New England more as an adventurer, just to kind of see what was happening. And his brother was already living here, and so John Jocelyn came over to Maine from England, and it's pretty much on his first night here, he's at his brother's cabin, basically, on coastal Maine, and three neighbors come over to visit. And they all tell him these crazy, spooky stories about things that had happened to them, they said, you know, in their daily life in Maine. So the first one tells the story how he was out sailing in a small boat in the harbor with some of the local Native Americans. They're just kind of sailing around up and down the coast. I think they're fishing. And as they're heading back home on a rock, they see this gigantic sea serpent. It's like this huge, monstrous snake lying on a rock. And so, you know, the English settler who's telling the story of John Jocelyn says, you know, to his uh, Native American friend, you know, I'm going to get out my gun. I'm going to blow the head off that thing. I'm going to kill it. And the Native American's like, no, please don't shoot at that thing. There's no way you're going to be able to kill it, and you're just going to make it angry. So he doesn't shoot it, and they just they head home. So that's like the first story that John Jocelyn has told. The second one is even a little crazier. It's told by one of his neighbors whose name is Mr. Mitten, which I think is a great name. No one's named <laughs> Mitten anymore. Um, so Mr. Mitten's out sailing again, out in the harbor in his boat by himself, when suddenly a big hand comes out of the water and grabs the side of his boat, then another one, and this giant, this big merman pulls himself up out of the harbor and tries to climb into the boat. So Mr. Mitten, you know, chops his hand off, and the merman sort of sinks back into the water, and the water turns bright purple from the blood, which I think is crazy to think that there'd be a merman off the coast of Maine, but I kind of like the, you know, the image of it. And then the third story that Amber tells is somebody named Mr. Foxwell, and this one actually creeps me out a little bit because it's just kind of, I just find it a little spooky. So Mr. Foxwell, again, is in a boat. Everyone apparently was, I mean, people were traveling by boat then. It was the safest way to get around. He's sailing back to Maine from Cape Ann. He'd probably been visiting Salem, which is a really old settlement. So as he's sailing up along the coast of Maine, um, it's getting dark. And as he's sailing up the coast, he's 
puts down his anchor to spend the night. He's off the coast a little bit. And he suddenly notices a fire on the shore. And as he's watching the fire, all these people appear. And they start dancing around the fire. And, you know, he's thinking, okay, maybe they're Native Americans, but he can't quite see exactly who they are. Mm -hmm. And then they start to call out his name. They're like, Mr. Foxwell, come join us out here on the shore. Come and join us, Mr. Foxwell. And at this point, you know, he gets a little freaked out, and I can show the picture his hair standing up, because how do they know his name? Like, he's in the middle of nowhere. Who are these people dancing on the shore, and how do they know his name? Um, and he wisely does not go to the shore. And, abrupt, you know, the people keep dancing around the fire, and then abruptly they disappear. And when he, in the, in the morning, he goes to the shore, and he can find the remains of the fire, and he can see that shoe prints in the sand so it's probably not the Native Americans. You know, they're using the word shoe, so it sounds like they're uh, English settlers or something. Mm -hmm. But again, it's not in an area where there's any towns. And how do these people know his name? So I just kind of find that idea that there would be strangers in the middle of this wilderness who basically show up in the middle of the night and know your name and then just disappear, which I find a little creepy. So, yeah. uh, <laughs> it definitely creeped me out when I was reading it. sounded to me, it made me think of that scene from The Wicker Man when he's <laughs> going exactly. Yeah. But what would have happened if he went ashore? Probably he wouldn't have been around to tell the story to John Jocelyn. You know, I think, uh, you know, some historians say that John Jocelyn is kind of a gullible writer, that he repeats everything he says, mm -hmm. that he hears from people. But I appreciate that. I mean, I like knowing what stories people were telling then and whether they're true or not, you know, I can't say. But um, it's it, they're creepy stories. And it's... Um, you know, when I read sometimes about these stories, really from the early times when this area was settled by Europeans, the people who came here from England, I mean, it was pretty much the Renaissance still. Uh, you know, some of the people who came here could have seen plays performed by Shakespeare's theater company. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I mean, John Jocelyn may have since he was a, a wealthy nobleman. So it was a totally different mental world that people were inhabiting then. It was just Magic was much more prevalent. The supernatural was much more prevalent. They just had a very different worldview. So when you when I read those stories, I have to keep that in mind. Like these people were not necessarily gullible. They just had a very different worldview than people have now. Well, I think gullible though is is almost an irrelevant term because in trying to decide whether or not he was gullible, you're trying to decide whether or not these stories were true, and I, I don't think it matters. I, I think the important thing is that these are the stories that people were telling at that time. And that that's what you take out of this, that this is, this was the culture of that time. That's way exactly. more important to me as to whether or not they're true stories. Right. Right. I agree. And you know, why do people want to tell stories like this? And what does it say about how they viewed the world at that time? Mm -hmm. You know, so. Well, if uh, anybody has any questions for our guest, Peter Muse, you can feel free to call in 508-996-0500, 1-877-996-1420. You can also email us, SpookyCrew at SpookySouthCoast.com, or you can jump in the chat room on SpookySouthCoast.com, and Moniz will let us know if any questions roll in. But uh, one of those questions that I have for you, Peter, is, you know, we just observed America's Independence Day a, a few yep. weeks ago, and uh, you actually have a very interesting story about John Hancock's hands, which I had never oh. heard before, the, <laughs> the hands that signed in that giant, scrawling signature. Hey, right, and again, I don't know if this story is true, but I've seen it floating around places, and I tried to find an original source, like, where was this story written down? Like, mm -hmm. who first told this story? But the basic story is that, you know, John Hancock was quite wealthy. 
he was one of the wealthiest people in Boston in the 1700s. You know, he was an important politician and all of this stuff. Uh, and when he died, he was buried with these large rings on his fingers, which, according to legends, uh, again, I don't know where these legends come from, uh, grave robbers actually chopped his hands off because they were unable to remove the rings because rigor mortis had set, it had set in. So it was just quicker to chop his hands off than actually, you know, try to pull the rings off. So, um, and his body sort of didn't necessarily get treated with the respect you would think it would. I think at some point his grave was disturbed when they were putting in the subway, when they were renovating the, the basement of a building nearby, uh, the Granary Burial Ground. So his body certainly has been abused, I think. And it may not even actually be in his grave anymore, but there definitely is a nice monument to him. So hopefully... Uh, his spirit is at peace because he's got a great monument there in the Granary Burial Ground. Um, you know, I actually, years ago, I'd written another post a couple of years ago about the 4th of July as it was celebrated in my hometown of Haverhill. Um, I grew up in Haverhill, Massachusetts. And someone had written an interesting history. I think his name was George Cogswell. So he had written sort of sketches about his childhood in Haverhill in the 19th century. Um, and so the 4th of July in Haverhill in the 19th century was really just like a drunken riot is kind of what it sounded like. Um, you know, people would build a bonfire in the downtown business district. They would bring their pistols. They would bring their shotguns. They'd be shooting it off in the air, burning things drunk. Um, and then the police would finally show up and try to, you know, bring some order to the occasion. But some of the people who, particularly I think young men who are experienced in the 4th of July activities, would uh, have these straps around their bodies, which they had attached nails to that were sticking out. So the police couldn't actually grab them because they were covered with all these nails, which is just so crazy. Um, and I think what we do for the 4th of July now is much more you know, peaceful and calm. But uh, you know, reading a lot of these histories and accounts of how people celebrated holidays in the past. It's amazing, I think, how drunk people were for almost every holiday in the past. It was sort of the main activity that you would do for a holiday is you would get drunk, and then you would, you know, maybe you would light a bonfire, maybe you would go door-to-door begging for food or more liquor or something like that. But there was definitely a lot of drinking in the past. It sounds like kind of modern times to me, yeah. If you have... Yeah. But uh, yeah. And, and also, after hearing that story, I'm no longer surprised that uh... – Haverhill is the town that gave birth to Rob Zombie. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Some things linger there. You know, um, I was just talking to somebody tonight about kind of our local heroine in Haverhill, uh, Hannah Dustin, which some, I, there was a time where she was, I think, maybe well-known on a national level, but her story is so gruesome and politically incorrect that I don't think it's publicized as much these days. Um, but when I was a Cub Scout, like we all knew the story of Hannah Dustin, and we went to the museum and saw her hatchet and all this stuff. And basically, uh, Hannah Dustin, the Dustins, were a family of early settlers in Haverhill. And I think it was in, let's say, the 1690s, uh, Haverhill was raided by Penacook Indians who were unhappy with, you know, European encroachment upon their lands. So these Penacook, this Penacook War Party came attacked Haverhill, burned a lot of it down, killed a bunch of people, but they kidnapped Hannah Dustin, um, her new 
newborn baby and her nurse and kind of took them in canoes and started to head up the Merrimack River into New Hampshire. And uh, along the way, according to the legend, whether this is true or not, I don't know, they killed the baby because it was just too much work or something for them to bring the baby with them further north into New Hampshire. And so one night on this journey north along the Merrimack River while they were asleep, uh, Hannah Dustin and her nurse, and I believe one other English person who had been kidnapped, a young boy, uh, they slaughtered all of the Pentecost that they were with. It was probably like 20 or 25 of them. Slaughtered them, scalped them, brought the scalps back to Haverhill, and were sort of acclaimed as heroes. And if you go to the GAR Park in Haverhill, which is right in downtown, there's a big statue of Hannah Dustin with an axe, kind of looking really angry. And there are plaques around the base of the statue kind of telling her story. But, you know, these days, a story like that is just not, that's not the type of person that would be a heroine these days, I think, because just, it's, yeah, there's a lot of political incorrectness there and a lot of gruesome violence. Well, we but have, as kids, we're all taught about this. We have our anti-heroes of today, too, so. Yeah, I think she, Hannah Dustin's kind of on the borderline these days, I think. Now, I was going to say, when I was researching uh, for my book, my first book, Ghost of the South Coast, which, uh, by the way, my second book, Haunted Objects, is now available <laughs> in bookstores everywhere that I wrote with Christopher Balzano. But uh, when I was researching for Ghost of the South Coast, I dug into a lot of the history of some of the towns in this region and some of their stranger stories. And from what I could find, uh, I found one of the earliest ghost stories coming out of New England being uh, Gosnold, you know, when he when he came here and discovered Cape Cod. Uh, he actually stole the rowboat of the local Native Americans, and they placed a curse on him, and now his ship is seen out off the waters. You know, we're we're placing that at about, what, 1609 was when Gosnell first came? So, I mean, do you have any ghost stories that may be even older than that from the area? You know, I mean, that's really early. Mm-hmm. That's before there were any permanent settlements here. And, you know, they put the curse on him. He probably gave them yellow fever or some other horrible disease. <laughs> he gave them much worse thing, yeah. Yeah, any immunity to, and uh, unfortunately, I think, you know, when the Puritans arrived, when the Pilgrims arrived, something like two-thirds of the Native American population had died from these illnesses they had caught from, you know, fishermen or the early explorers who just probably, you know, sneezed and then sailed away, and then, you know, the poor Algonquins just didn't have their resources to fight these illnesses. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't, that's probably the earliest one I would heard, have heard as well. I did read somewhere about what people claim is the earliest UFO sighting. And you may know something earlier than this, but um, I guess it was in 1638, there were some men sailing on the muddy river here in Boston, which at the time was probably much larger than it is now. But that's the river that kind of goes to the Fenway neighborhood, goes behind near Fenway Park. Um, and they were sailing on the muddy river when they saw this kind of glowing rectangle appear in the sky. Oh, that was the sicko sign. It was actually described as a flying swine. Right. It changed shape. It, it, was, a, it was a glowing, I saw, I, the, my, the account I saw was a glowing rectangle, a glowing swine, and then a glowing arrow. Yep. And then it disappeared. And then they realized they had been traveling for an hour and had forgotten all about it and found themselves had moved upriver somehow against the current, which is, you know, interesting. And they didn't 
use the word UFO, they probably just thought this was kind of some sort of providential sign from God or who knows what. Mm-hmm. We don't. There's no real account of what they thought about it. It's sort of put in kind of a list of signs and wonders that were happening in the area at the time. It was actually recorded in John Winthrop's uh, journal. Yeah. yeah. So that actually predates the uh, Bridgewater sighting of the 1700s. That uh, that so many people reference as being the earliest. So definitely, uh, right. yeah, definitely some yeah. interesting stuff. And that whole neighborhood's kind of weird out there anyway, even today. Uh, <laughs> I work I, right down the road. Yeah, it's. I, I actually live by there, so uh, every day I walk almost along the muddy river, and it's just amazing because it's, you know, it's kind of now it's in the middle of a park, and you know, there's stores and museums and things near there, but. You know, walking through there, I mean, you've got things like that 1638 sighting or whatever in the sky. Um, there was a witch named Anne Hibbins, and let's say an accused witch, because she probably wasn't really a witch. She was probably just a wealthy woman that people wanted to get rid of. But she owned a large estate on the Muddy River, probably about 300 acres. I've often wondered exactly where that was. Um, but, you know... I think it was called Stanford, I believe, was the name of her estate. But when she died, other people took it. So that was in the same neighborhood as well as sort of this uh, UFO sighting. And there's the Charlesgate building, which is also on the Muddy River, which is sort of a big old apartment building. It's been an EU dormitory and different things, which has a lot of uh, ghost stories from the 1970s coming out of it, particularly that students were telling. So it's one thing I like about this area is you – it's such an old area for, you know, for America, it's old. For North right. America, it's old. You know, compared to Europe or Asia, it's not old at all. But, so you know, there's so many stories in each town or each city that if you just scratch a little bit, you find like, oh, here's the ghost, here's the witch, here's the haunted house, here's the UFO, here's the Bigfoot sighting. There's all these things. Here's the place named after the devil. So I just, it's amazing. And when I started the blog four years ago, I sort of thought, how long can I actually keep this up? Like, when will I run out of stuff? And it's never been a concern. Yeah, I like, I don't there's think... always more stuff that I can find, which is just amazing. I got a question. How many Bigfoot recordings did you come across in your research of the history? You know, Bigfoot, I, it's hard because you find reports of wild men. Yes. You'll talk, they'll talk about, oh, we found a wild man. Or we're walking through the woods and we saw a wild man. There are a few accounts even of giants, which there was one from Connecticut from the 1800s where a bunch of guys are coming home. I think they're coming home from a party, walking through these woods at night, and they suddenly hear this rustling sound, and a giant just kind of gets up out of the bushes where he's been sleeping. And he actually asks them, like, oh, how far was it to, I think, New Haven or something like that? And they're like, "Uh, it's about 20 miles. And the giant just runs off. So I don't know what to make of a story like that. And that's just, it appeared in a newspaper, so that may have just been an attempt to get more circulation. But, you know, the Bigfoot stories, you do certainly see stories about, like, hairy wild men, definitely in the 1800s. I don't know if you see as many in the 1700s, but I have seen one, again, from Hazel, where I grew up, about a wild man that they found wandering through the fields who they just thought was, somebody who had gone crazy. Basically, um, in Haverhill at the time, there was some local boy, like a teenager, who had come down with a fever, 
and he wandered off from the house in his feverish state. So they sent out a search party to try to find him. And while they were wandering around, you know, in the fields and the surrounding woods trying to find him, they find this wild man who's kind of naked, covered in hair, can't speak, um, just kind of in a almost a animalistic state. And they don't know what to do with him, so they just let him go free. He just kind of wanders off back in the woods. And then they do find the boy who has fallen in a pond and drowned. So it wasn't the boy, it was just some other random roaming wild man they found in the woods in Haverhill. Which I it's interesting. I I think if you scratch around or look into some of the history, you probably find some more accounts of those type of things. Right. The terminology has probably changed over time, but you know, we could be talking about the same basic stuff. No, one of the questions that I wonder too is, I I know I I was kind of surprised because growing up in Plymouth when I was a kid, you don't really get taught this, but. You know, uh, I was surprised to find that the English had taken so many of the Native Americans as slaves with them back to England. And then they came back to the New World and, you know, started being intermediaries between the tribes and the settlers. So I wonder how many of these. Swanto. Well, I wonder how many of these stories that they told uh, to the to the settlers were kind of like uh, based on what these Native Americans might have heard back in Europe. And they kind of played on some of the fears of the settlers. Difficult to say. I mean, definitely, I think, in the earlier years of European settlement here, uh, the settlers, the European settlers and the local Indians were definitely more on equal footing. So mm-hmm. I feel like there was more give and take and more back and forth between the two groups. Um, for instance, the, um, the Native Americans, particularly in southern New England, had a Manitou or a deity named Hobomok. Uh, or Hobomako, he goes by a bunch of different names. But he was sort of the deity that was associated with shamanism, um, associated with the direction of northeast, which is where a lot of the bad weather comes from. He was associated with darkness, nighttime. Uh, he was, a, in particular, a deity that people would go to, go deep into the woods or deep into the swamps and try to encounter him. And often there was, uh, white hellbore, which is a somewhat toxic hallucinogenic plant, uh, was involved. So people try to go off and encounter Hobomok and, you know, get him to be sort of their patron manitou because he would give you a lot of shamanic power. Um, so when the English settlers arrived and they heard about Hobomok, they immediately thought that he was the devil. Like, okay, he is the devil. And, you know, because in a Christian worldview, there's God and there's the devil. Whereas in the Algonquin worldview, they were like, you know, 39 deities, or however many there are, they don't have such clear division between good and evil. Um, but the Puritans kind of latched onto Hobomok, like, oh my god, Hobomok, he's definitely the devil. So you see some early witch trial um, documents, and they use the word Hobomok to refer to Satan. Um, so you see a woman saying, oh, you know, I was, in the, the same... I was in the woods and I encountered Hobomok, or, you know, I signed Hobomok's book things like that. So that's one place I definitely know where you see kind of the back and forth between things. Um, but as, you know, as the European presence grew and grew and grew, uh, definitely you see the Native Americans taking on more European lore as well, but kind of keeping a, you know, keeping their own spin on things as well. Um, so it's not entirely one or the other, but they have their own spin on all the European lore, I think. 
Well, and as we look at the overarching, you know, themes of what we have dealt with here in New England over the past 400 years, I, I think we're still kind of reveling in some of that Puritanism and some of our beliefs. You know, we, we run into it here on this program talking a lot about this stuff, uh, and it's not as openly discussed now, even when we're in this renaissance of spiritual belief and, and paranormal belief uh, due to the increased media attention. But even still here in New England, you know, we, we kind of hit that brick wall when we're trying to talk about it in front of other people. Yeah, it's you know, it's interesting. I think if we were to able to travel back in time and to see, you know, New England in the 1600s, there would have been a lot more use of magic than people would expect. I mean, we sort of... We all grew up with the idea that the Puritans were, um, you know, kind of dour and God-fearing, and I think that's probably true. But a lot of people did practice magic because they were kind of still that Renaissance worldview of magic and how the universe operated. Uh, so when you look, like, say, I don't know, things like the Salem Witch Trials or other witch trials, you know, you've got this negative magic that the alleged witches are doing on people. But the average person at the time also had protective magic that they knew how to practice. Um, and some of it's a little freaky compared to what people think of as magic these days, where, you know, you think of like Harry Potter with people zapping each other with wands and there's these energy bolts flying around and things like that. And the magic that the Puritans would have practiced was very kind of visceral very focused on the body. It was kind of gross, I think, to a modern person. Um, for instance, if you were, if you thought you had been bewitched by somebody, one of the common cures that people would suggest is that they would take some of your urine and perhaps boil it in a pot, or maybe they would put it in a bottle full of nails pins, broken glass, and then heat up that bottle till the bottle exploded, um, or maybe even just bury the bottle someplace. And the basic, there's a theory here behind it, it's not just kind of random grossness. The idea is that the witch, wherever this witch is out there in the world who's attacked you, the witchcraft is directed to your physical body. So you've got, you've got witchcraft in your body. It's almost like the picture of virus, and the virus is sure. witchcraft. And so you want to deflect that witchcraft away from your body. So it's in your body, and if you can get it into, like, the urine, which is kind of coming from your body, when the witchcraft comes from the witch, it's not going to hit your body. It's going to go into that urine, and it's going to encounter the needles. It's going to encounter the pins. It's going to encounter the heat. And all that pain, the needles, the pins, the heat, that will bounce back to the witch and cause damage to the witch who's causing the problems to you. Hmm. So there's this idea that there was almost there was a connection between the victim and the witch. Um, that was one way that people would, uh, you know, try to combat witchcraft. It's and I know they've found it. It's called sympathetic magic. Exactly. And they found these bottles. I, certainly, I know they found quite a few in England. They haven't found as many here in New England, but there certainly are accounts of them. Um, so, so now every time we're stuck in expressway traffic and we have to pee into a bottle, we can just say we're protecting exactly. ourselves. Exactly. Just put some nails in there, you'll be all set. <laughs> right. you know? 
Well, we are coming up on, on the end of the program here, Peter, so the, there's no better way to end it than on peeing in a bottle. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's, this is definitely one of the high notes that we've ended the show on. But uh, it was great talking with you, and I definitely would like to have you come back uh, on, in the future so we can talk for a full show and, uh, and really get into some of these stories. That would be great. So thank you for having me on. All right. Thank you for joining us. Again, his name is Peter Muse. The website, newenglandfolklore.blogspot.com. Check it out. There's four years' worth of stuff to read there. You're going to get lost in it and get lost in the legends of lore of New England, and you'll have a great time reading it also. Thank you for compiling it, and, and we look forward to reading more in the future. Good. Thank you, Tim. Have a good night. You too. Bye-bye. All right, that is uh, just about the end of the program. We are coming up uh, in the final minute here. Again, Wednesday night at 8 o'clock, we will announce our next Legend Trips events event to the general public. Uh, tickets will be $99, so uh, just as a heads up, uh, it's going to be October 20th in Wareham. I know I said I was going to kind of keep the details under wrap, but we want people to know so that they can be ready. And uh, then we'll be back with more events coming up in 2013, right? 2012 i can't remember provided the world doesn't end on december 21st but uh that's the way that's the one to check out uh it'll be another haunted history night in wareham pre-sale right now for those who are part of the legend trips pre-sale email list so check your inbox for that get the tickets while you can we're going to have readings available again as well from uh tiffany rice and stephanie burke our spirit mediums who will be there and uh, so you'll be able to purchase those once you purchase the ticket. We'll announce all that stuff a little bit later on. And we're even we're trying to work out a hotel deal in the area so the people that come from out of the area can find a place to stay. Uh, so stay tuned to SpookySouthCoast.com and LegendTrips.com for more details on that. We'll be back next week, again, waiting for the Red Sox to get over. But we'll talk more about the paranormal as we do each week. And if you want to check out past episodes, SpookySouthCoast.com is the way to go. Until then, stay spooktacular. <laughs>